Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki, and it's my huge privilege and honor to introduce you to the robotics and AI community in Australia. Today, my guest is Therese Keane. She's an associate professor at the Department of Education. She's the Deputy Chair, Strategic Initiatives and Partnerships, Swinburne University. Therese, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks for having me today. We had a brief chat a couple of weeks ago, and I just felt um, so enthused by encounter that I'm so happy that we're managing to catch up today. Yes, the, the chat was wonderful, and it's wonderful to talk to another like-minded person who also understands robotics and also in the education field. So, again, thank you very much for having me on today on your um, on your podcast. It's a, it's a great pleasure. I'll use that I'm in the educational field very loosely as I'm just educating people briefly by my podcast but I do actually think I've got such um, wonderful feedback from people listening so I think it's doing its job and just educating them about the fantastic people that we have in the robotics and AI community in Australia. So you've had a very interesting career to date. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure. Um, look, I, I don't see it as interesting myself, but other people might. Um, look, I started off as a, um, a computer science teacher. So I was a, um, a classroom teacher, um, secondary schools mainly, um, for about 17 years. And my uh, background was to teach um, and is to teach uh, year 11 and year 12 computing uh, to students. So when I, when I first began my career, I was given um, four year 12 classes um, and I was in an all-boys school. So here I was, this 21-year-old young female, and I was teaching four classes of um, boys in IT. And look, they were fantastic. Uh, they were wonderful um, students. And I sort of progressed while I was teaching computing, I progressed into robotics. So I was teaching what was known as Lego Dacta, um, which today would be Lego Mindstorms. But the big difference back then was that Lego Dacta was quite new and it had wires. So um, we didn't have Bluetooth. And so all the sensors had wires, all the um, motors had wires, and it all connected to a, um, a control panel and obviously to the computer. And so you could only go so far. Your, your um, mechanics couldn't really drive very far because it was determined by the length of wire that you had. So I, I did teaching, as I said, for about 17 years. Along the way, I did other things as well. So I sat on um, subject associations, uh, particularly in computing. So um, I sat on those so that I could actually um, provide support to teachers wanting to um, or needing to um, teach computing. I also worked with the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. So I had various roles there. And I also wrote, um, co-wrote the textbooks they've used. So I've, um, you know, for 26, 27 years now, I've been involved in writing the, uh, the textbooks at VCIT. And, um, you know, I, I was doing sums the other day and we um we have sold over 170,000 um copies over 26 27 years so um you know if you roughly equate one textbook to one student that's about 170,000 students um that have done IT over you know over the years in Victoria so I think that's quite a um interesting milestone and so I moved um, in 2011, I moved into academia. So I've been at Swinburne since. And when I first started at Swinburne, 
I was in the Faculty of IT and I was here to um, design a course on educational technologies aimed at primary and secondary school teachers. And then in 2015, um, the university started the, uh, the Department of Education. And so I was there to, uh, to start up the, uh, the secondary part of it. So, you know, having, as I said, having worked in tertiary, having worked in um, secondary as well, and also a lot of P to 12 schools, because whilst I was a computer teacher by trade, I was also a director of IT and I oversaw the IT infrastructure, the help desk, um, and all the IT, um, you know, workings in a school. So I've got quite a lot of experience from um, the technical side, the um, administrative side, the teaching side as well. And then I moved to tertiary and I've got that experience too. So I've sort of seen a, a, an overall of how computing is uh, taught and also obviously robotics and other aspects of um, this side of things. 170,000 um, students to raise, that's a phenomenal milestone. You should be extremely proud. I, I think um, you've touched lives there and it's very interesting to me, teachers that have actually got this experience and then they turn to academia because it's a really good combination. Um, it's, it's practical that you've seen what, what's happening in the field for you then to go at a university level when students are coming in, how you should be forming and shaping the next generation of teachers and educators going out. Absolutely. It does give us that um, privilege to be able to work with um, young people to be able to do this. And also, um, and when I say young people, I also mean uh, master students who are doing uh, a career change. So not necessarily young students, but mature age students as well. So it's always wonderful to work with the new batch of, um, you know, want to be teachers coming in so that um, they can go in there and they can shape lives as well. You know, what I was thinking the other evening as I was thinking of our discussion, what, what really intrigues me is, and correct me if, or if I've got this right or wrong, if you're an educator at university level, you have to have at least a master's degree. Is that correct? At least. the bare minimum. At, at least and preferably a PhD. Okay. So how come teachers that are kicked into educate our youngsters don't need to have the same thing? Look, that's a that's a very good question, um, and I can't I really can't answer that. Um, I just I don't really know. I believe yeah. Finland requires a master's, and that's um, you know it's a completely different topic, probably to uh, to sort of look yeah. up and debate on. But no, I don't know. I, I just suddenly remembered this when you were talking because it kept me awake, and I'm going, surely there's something wrong here in our education system. In Finland, Finland, of course, if you're a teacher, you're in one of the top professions because obviously they know you've got a master's degree. It's highly sought after to, to be a teacher there, um, and the whole education system is very successful and very different to ours here. That's exactly it. And look, there are a number of uh, things that are sort of happening in the background as well. So, um, you know, there is a teacher shortage looming. Um, there's certainly areas that um, are hard to staff, such as computing is one of it. Technology is another area in, in Australia. And so, you know, when you sort of have that background, you then add more complexities. Um, you know, do you sort of increase, do you increase the um, 
um, level of say, what um, requirements do you require to get into teaching? Or do you try and fix the whole in terms of teacher um, shortage coming up? So I think there's a balance for those who are in that um, space that have to actually make those decisions. I'm not party to those decisions, um, but certainly I can understand there is that tension that um, you know goes on. So quality versus quantity in a sense. Well, look, it's going to come definitely, as you say, it's going to bite us in the butt. I think the HR um, in Victoria is 54 for you to go into a teaching career. It's which now 70. Oh, is it? Oh, thank goodness. It's gone yeah. up because I was about to say that's just woeful. I, I really, I despair that's the best that we can do for our educators. 70 at least is a starting Um yeah, look, I, I think the education system has got a lot of challenges and um, to add on top of that is, of course, the exodus of male teachers um, in Victoria that I, I was listening to a program on this that uh, the, the young men, my son is one of them, start and then they have a year and they just go, nope, this is not for them, they can't handle the, the stress associated with it. Mm. It's, it's a demanding profession um, yeah. and it's one that requires... Um, people to be totally switched on and engaged and it's not you know people go into the profession thinking all they're going to do is just impart knowledge to to young um, you know students they're they're in for a shock because there's a lot more than you know just imparting knowledge there's um, mentorship there's um, you know everything from uh, creating references, uh, resources, um, activities, meetings, um, meetings within faculties, within um, departments. There's meetings with parents. There's the whole pastoral side. So it's it's looking at the child as a whole rather than just yeah. imparting knowledge. So it's a big it's a big big um, you know responsibility. And oh, very definitely, cool. yeah. I look at teachers, and you've got my utmost respect. I love you. I I've got a lot of time. My sister. I come from a long line of teachers and I think um, I think actually I view teachers as the third parent the third in the equation of whatever you've got at home but normally um, you probably to an awful lot that you look at kids and you can influence and you uh, the, the measure of good you can do is equal to the measure of bad of course that you can do if you're a bad teacher let's hope we don't have a lot of those but anyway so talking about master's thesis you um which you finished in 2020 which is sounds like a lifetime ago but um it was on why girls don't study it at secondary school um i think it's actually still relevant today so can you tell us a little bit about that Certainly. So it was about um, 20 years ago when I um, when I finished this um, master's degree and I was still teaching in a school and particularly I was teaching in a um, co-educational school and there weren't many girls taking it. And, you know, from my own from my own personal experience, I, I went to an all girls school myself. So I went to an all girls secondary school. And computing was not something that um, we did. And it was, it was, you know, it was before computing got, um, you know, very big in schools. So in the 1990s, computing exploded and there were lots of classes. But right at the end of the 80s, um, when I did Year 12, we couldn't do computing at all um, at year, year 12 um, for love or money. And um, it wasn't something that really girls did. So it was up there with the physics and um, some of the harder sciences. And so I really, really wanted to do computer science in year 12 and my parents wouldn't let me get out of the school I was at. So the compromise was that I would do computer science as a year 12 subject at Footscray TAFE. So, and that was on a Saturday. So. 
I ended up doing five days of ordinary schooling. And then on my sixth day on my Saturday, I would uh, get to Footscray TAFE and that would go from, I think from memory nine o'clock till about one o'clock. And we would be doing hardcore computer science. And I remember there was only one other girl in the class and there was about 20 something in that, in that class, but there was just myself and one other girl. And that was it. Um, it really opened my eyes because it was a case of where, where's the rest of the girls? Why aren't they here? And there was something different about the boys as well. It wasn't that they were um, odd or for me, they were odd because I went to an all girls school, but they didn't necessarily um, interact with the two girls, myself and the other girl as well. So we were sort of left hanging there, um, but it just seemed really odd. And I just got this really odd feeling, you know, that there's something just not right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, so basically I worked, as I said, when I went into um, working, I worked mainly in boys' schools. And then at one point I worked in a co-educational school. And that's where I saw that girls were still not doing their, um, you know, not doing computing. Again, you know, there was a, a very big proportion of males compared to girls. And I started to sort of look at what the purpose and what was going on. And the school had employed me in part for that reason where they had male teachers of computing and they thought a female teacher would be probably not a bad way of trying to attract girls, but we just couldn't get the girls in. And when I started doing my, my thesis, my master's thesis, and obviously I didn't do it at the school I was at because that would be unethical, um, it became apparent that girls viewed computing as geeky, nerdy. Um, they found that having computer clubs, the schools that had um, clubs like a computer club, um, it just accentuated having a club that's exclusive and it becomes exclusively male. So what I, what I encountered when I was in year 12 and I couldn't put my hand to it, girls were encountering it in a different way, but still in the, you know, in the same sort of form, if you know what I mean. And so, you know, 20, you know, even though my thesis is now 20 years old, just a bit over 20 years old, we, we still have issues in terms of IT is very much a, um, a male subject in the sense that for every one female, there's enough, for one female, there's four males. So it's a one to, you know, a 20% ratio of females to males. And so, or one in five, I should say, one in five is a female. And it's, you know, with the latest sort of statistics, we're looking at about 29% of females doing computing at tertiary, which is not, not very high. Now, this is, again, looking at it from a Western lens. If you look at it from different countries that are um, not from a Western lens necessarily, um, the rate of female studying computing is much higher, but not not 100% either. So, um, you know, the problems are still there. But, you know, as you're aware, there's been a concerted effort in terms of raising um, the female, um, I guess, awareness of um, STEM. 
and different initiatives and different interventions that have come out, um, you know, different programs. And one of the um, projects that I did, which was funded by the Australian Council of Deans of ICT, we looked at a number of um, interventions, about, I think about 29 or 30 interventions, which are prominent interventions. And we tried to work out whether having these interventions really helped the girls um, and would they come to IT to do IT in first year university? Or is it a bit of, you know, let's have fun. What a wonderful thing. We, you know, we've got an intervention um, and then nothing really happens. And so a couple of things that we found was that girls who did year 12 IT wanted to definitely do IT in first year university. So you already had the, the small number of girls who are already going to do IT at uh, university. You also have girls who obviously don't do IT at year, year 12, but they do come into university. And we need to find out really what it is that motivates them. So the question then becomes, how do you then get girls locked into doing year 12 IT so that that pipeline is coming through. And having these interventions, a lot of the girls, you know, did some of them, but they weren't the, they weren't the um, silver bullet. They weren't what was going to necessarily be the answer to say, hey, you know, this particular program makes girls want to do IT at university, at year 12 and university. Um, what we did find was that the, the most popular, and our numbers were so small that, um, you know, this was just a pilot. But programs that, for example, the um, Australian Computer Society's um, foundation runs, the Big Day In, I think it's called, they seem to be, that program seemed to be one of the um, more um, successful ones that the kids could actually um, identify. And also just plain and simple career fairs. So um, having, having, say, a booth where the kids could come in and talk with IT professionals, um, people from university to demystify. And so those two things really were to stand out um, interventions in terms of girls coming in to do IT. It sounds how simple, such a small little tweak and where you can make a difference in girls' lives. It, it is. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because there's a lot of money that um, goes into all these interventions and everyone who does it wholeheartedly believes that their intervention is helping. And no doubt it is helping, but it's, you know, it's to, to create these events, to, to do these sorts of things requires a lot of energy, a lot of fundraising, a lot of money from um, sponsors, governments, and everyone's doing it from a, a good place. But how effective are these collectively? And realistically, if we can identify the, um, the interventions that are really effective, that's probably where the money should be going. And that could be really the more collective response to how to get um, girls coming in. Yeah. I think further to that is when you've got, uh, let's take an example, uh, female engineers qualified, you know, tracking them and going, how long do they stay in the industry? Um, and I'm not actually sure of any university that's actually doing this, but, you know, there's a phenomenal dropout right there as well. And, um, I know there would be reasons why they're dropping out, but it, I, I just, as far as I know, I don't think anything's been um, collated and actually gone, okay, let's do a 10-year study across universities where we all pitch in together and we, we look at why the women are falling out of the industry. 
Yeah, look, something like that, a longitudinal study would be fantastic, but trying to get funding for longitudinal studies can be very difficult. Yeah. And also um, keeping in mind, you know, with, with an ever-changing dynamic in tertiary, it's very hard to, um, you know, you can't sort of get someone to promise I will be at the university for 12 years or 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an ever-changing dynamic. So I think, you know, a longitudinal study is, whilst it's fantastic, and I think that would provide so much data, um, there's also the internal pressures of publishing as well and getting that data and a, a long burn, you know, could be, you know, harder to <laughs> harder to long, sort of justify. The long, the long burn could be the burn that that's is it. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So that that's I think some of the reasons why, you know, it's harder. And also you can't put tracking ethically, you can't put tracking devices on people. So, <laughs> so. These brilliant ideas. Notice I'm not the one executing them. I just want the information. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you co-authored a paper, Humanoid Robots, Learning a Programming Language to Learn a Traditional Language. Tell us about this. Sure. So I'm going to take a step back. It was part of a, um, a three-year project, and the project was with the um, Association of Independent Schools of South Australia, and it was also with um, two colleagues, one from QUT and one from UQ um, and myself. And so basically what happened was that um, the Association of Independent Schools purchased two humanoid robots. They were two NOW robots from SoftBank. And what they did was they put these two robots into different schools and they did that over three years. In fact, it sort of went over four years, um, but it's easier to say it was a three-year project um, because the robots were actually, what we did find was that they were fragile in the hands of children. And so they ended up going back to Paris business class um, to get repaired. So, um, you know, they, they sort of spent a bit more time outside of the country than we expected. So um, these robots were put in various different schools. So they were put into low fee paying um, independent schools, very high fee paying, uh, girls only, boys only, co-ed, regional, um, metropolitan. So it was a wide range of um, schools within that, uh, within that sector. And what we did was we looked at um, how these robots were used in each of these. And we had robots put into early child uh, care um, centres that are attached to the school right up to year 10. And so we wanted to see how robots were used in different settings with different um, schools. And so what we, what we found was that um, particularly we've say, if we go to the early childhood ones, um, the young kids were looking at the, the robots inspired them to actually do at their level what I would call an algorithm. And so, yes, they can't write an algorithm. They, they don't understand, you know, you use a triangle for this or you use a parallelogram for that to describe it. That's, that's beyond their um, cognitive development levels. But for their um, cognition and their ability and their development, what they did was they had, if you can imagine, like butcher's paper that, that was rolled out. And so they ended up drawing like zeros and different kinds of things that signified this was a robot, it was going to talk, it was going to do this, it was going to move its arm up. 
Um, so they they were thinking, okay, it doesn't look like what you know an, an adult writes as um, an algorithm, but they were thinking, and that thinking was captured. And so they were then able to say to teacher when they looked at their um, algorithm, okay, the robot's going to stand up now. And so the teacher would help them program it. So the teacher would do the drag and drop of standing up, and the child would say, then the you know, the robot will talk. And so, and what will the robot say? And the kid would say, the teacher would type it in. So they were seeing that actions have consequences. And so that was the, at the basic form of, um, you know, robotics and programming to, you know, to the more complex forms of um, how the robots were used in say years seven, eight, nine, 10. Um, one of the, you know, we, we had many case studies, but the one that you just mentioned was one that was particularly of interest to me. And it was one that was in a um, regional school which had about 22% of the students who were Indigenous. And what was interesting was that with their um, culture, which is a, and language, Narunga, um, they, the school had tried to connect the students with their culture and their heritage and their language. And what they did was they had bought physical dictionaries, as in, you know, books, and they tried to teach the kids a bit about their language well that didn't go down terribly well the kids you know were like Ugh, you know and they just were not interested there was quite a lot of resistance so the school fought long and hard how can we get these robots and how can we connect the you know the culture and the language and so what the school submitted as a, an EOI was that they would get um, they would get a native speaker of Narunga, and there's only one fluent speaker at the time, and they got her to work with the teachers to uh, you know teach the uh, pronunciation, the words, and what the teachers did was they worked with the students and the robots. So as they were teaching the students how to program, the students were trying to teach the robot how to speak their language. So what they were trying to do is basically program the robot um, to speak Narunga. But with these robots, there's only so many default languages that the robot has. And they're the mainstream languages such as German, French, um, Japanese, English. So there's, you know, they're, they're the main variety. And Narunga being a very small language would not, you know, would not feature. So that was a hurdle that the students had to then try and solve. And so what they did was they then tried to get the robot to speak um, through phonetics. So they would elongate um, words, they would try and get um, the robot to um, make it sound right. And so the ability to teach a robot how to speak in a foreign language is not as daunting as trying to teach another um, human being. And so the kids really embraced the whole idea of learning how to program the robot and teach it how to speak in their language, which they were learning at the same time. So you could see there was an overlay of 21st century um, languages, i.e. the computer programming aspect, with the overlay of their very historical um, language. And so it was a fantastic moment because the kids were so enthused about um, how they could actually, they were learning about their language. And as I, as I mentioned before, you know, when you've got the um, dictionary, and there was resistance to that. And they've put that aside, but they're very happy to work with technology and they're very happy to work with the robot and learn about their language as a, you know, as a coincidental sort of context in a sense. 
it, it's just an amazing moment. And so one of the things that came out of our study was that we came up with this, um, and it wasn't just because of this case study, because throughout the whole case studies, what we found was that we made up this um, model, we call it the four plus four model. And so the four plus four model starts off with curiosity. So the students are very curious about the technology. Then they set themselves a challenge to do something that's, we found that with all kids, they set a challenge that was much harder than what they were actually capable of doing, um, but they did rise to it. Then we um, have the four C's, if you can imagine that. So they work together through collaboration. They communicate it with one another. There was a lot of critical thinking and there was a lot of creativity. So that whole creative thinking. And then we come down to what I, um, you know, we call computational thinking. So they deconstructed the problem. They tried to work out how they could actually solve this problem. And at the very end, they started coding. And so that's what we call the four plus four model. And that's what the students worked with and we found that this was this model was applicable to every case study that we did and so that you know curiosity that creativity that whole um, challenge and as I said you know finding things that are not just easy to to do but really challenging pro problems they really threw themselves into and I think it's such a great story and if you listen to being resistant to the, the dictionary, but then actually able, because you, if you're teaching someone, you need to have a comprehension yourself. So you, you need to understand and how to pronounce it. So teaching a robot in that instance is brilliant. What were the outcomes like long-term? I know 2019 sounds as though it's ages ago, but it's not if we take into account that we've just been through COVID. Look, um, basically the outcomes from the um, from the study were that um, the robots were actually an amazing tool for learning. Um, and whilst we had humanoid robots, um, we think that robots as a whole can be quite a very good uh, learning tool. Obviously, different robots have different purposes. So if you think about, say, the Lego robots, um, the Lego robots, you've got to add in the design element to it. You've got to build it up. Um, and then program it, but say a humanoid robot, it's already pre-built. So all you're doing is concentrating on the coding. Um, so it, it really depends on what, what your sort of focus is, um, you know, whether it is about social robots, whether it's just about coding or whether you want the students to actually build something to um, solve a problem. Um, again, you know, it, it will all depend, but the outcomes are that the robots actually are a fantastic tool um, to, to work with for students. And particularly in that whole area where we talk about STEM, it brings together the sciences, it brings together the technology, um, the engineering, especially if you're building a robot and the mathematics as well. So there's many advantages to, to um, you know, working with robots in, in this space for kids. Look, I completely agree with you. The, the, the question remains, um, you know, how affordable is the nail? You know, and I don't even want to know what it cost you to send it back to France. It would have been a hugely expensive um, episode there. But having kids introduced to robotics from a very early age, um, probably the NAO is a bit of a sophisticated robot for primary school kids, probably a Lego, something that they can build and, and then program or make block or something like that. But I think across Australia, and this is something that all schools are struggling with, is the funding models. You know, we all talk about all kids must be, you know, um, 
subjected to coding and they must learn, but who's paying for all of this? You know, it's, it's not apples for apples. Maybe in private school where there's lots of funding, they can buy these things, but I don't see this happening in government schools. It, it is, and that, that is a very big um, issue there in terms of resource allocation. Um, I mean, with the Independent Schools Association, what they did was they bought two robots and they shared it amongst the schools. So that was one way of doing it. When um, we were dealing with schools, there were a number of schools, um, and this is not necessarily independent schools, but some schools were saying how they were uh, doing fundraising. So the parents' um, bodies were fundraising for uh, their kids. Others were talking about sharing between two schools. Um, so there were all different kinds of models. Um, even when you sort of think about but, um, you know, at the time, a now robot was around $15,000. Um, and I'm not here by any means to spruik these robots. So I'm not here, you know, selling them at all. This was just our study. Um, you know, you look at Lego Robotics and a Mindstorm kit is around the, you know, the 550 plus GST plus an expander kit. But one kit between two people is, you know, is not really enough if you've got a classroom. So you're still going to spend a couple of thousand dollars and then you're going to have to um, continue buying, say, sensors and parts because they break or they disappear or, you, you know, natural attrition in classrooms. So, um, you know, any anywhere you go, robotics is expensive. There is no cheap option. I know towards the end of our studies, um, our research project, there were quite a number of other robots on the market. Um, nothing as um, cute or as um, gorgeous looking as the Nows, um, which was one of the you know reasons why kids really um, you know went towards the Nows and really gravitated. But I, I've been holding out, hoping that post-COVID um, there'll be other robots that will be as beautiful looking and able to be used in classrooms at a, a lower price point. Um, so certainly, you know, I, I'm still very optimistic about that whole side of things. Look, it's, it's a tricky market because, as you said, they are expensive. They, um, de depending on how many um, fingers and ligaments that, you know, I, I wouldn't even consider having that as for children because I can just see one finger broken off and it's but not malicious. You can just pull it That's the right. wrong way or you just touch it the wrong way and there's a finger missing. Yeah. Um, it's a bit daunting playing with your robot without a finger. So I can still <laughs> <laughs> so, but look, um, yeah, like the, the market is ever changing and there are always robots coming and going. So certainly if I have any um, things that you would be interested, I'll send them to you. That'd be great. Um, yeah. How do you think um, education is going to change in the coming years, Therese, to uh, prepare our kids for their futures? Look, I think um, we're, we're seeing the changes now, particularly with COVID. I think COVID accelerated many of these changes, particularly with remote learning. Um, you know, it was, it's not necessarily what students wanted or, um, you know, it's not perhaps the first choice for people because humans are a social, um, you know, they are very social, they want to interact. And, you know, when you talk about um, Piaget and Vygotsky and that whole element of um, learning, learning is a, a social, um, you know, activity. And so really one, one feeds off one another when you're in a room, um, you know, together. They, you know, you can still substitute it with Teams and Zoom, but there, there's elements missing that you don't, you don't get and there are subtleties. And so 
um, you know, whilst, whilst, you know, we had no choice rather than having no education, having some education is better than nothing. Um, I think what he did do was it accelerated the whole um, side of IT and um, what we can do as possibilities in the future so that, you know, we don't exclude kids from school. So we've got other ways of doing it. Um, but I do also think that there are a couple of elements to this. It could be both a positive and a negative. A, you know, a negative could be that and I'm, I've heard from lots of parents who have young children. I, I hate I hate having to do remote learning. It's not good for um, kids in grade one or grade two or, or foundation. Um, I, and I totally respect, you know, I totally respect that. And they feel that their kids spent too long in front of a computer. And so there's now that whole backlash of, nah, we don't want them in front of a computer. They should be out in the fresh air, kicking a football, playing, you know, netball. Um, so there's one sort of camp of people who are basically saying no to the IT and technology there's the other camp who are saying yeah okay it's great to be back at school this is a you know a um a fallback measure there's another camp that are saying okay you know that's fantastic i'd like to do a career in this you know in this sort of space it's it's really hard to really tell what the impact's going to be um i don't know that um, you know, because as I said, this was a transformation that was compulsory. It was a digital transformation that was not um, something that was optional. It was compulsory. It was mandatory in terms of the only way you could work with, you know, your education was to use this, you know, method. I'm not sure that um, we're going to wind that back either. We know that it works. It's there as a backstop. But how do we actually now move away from that whole mindset of people thinking IT and remote learning and think of it in terms of, hey, there's artificial intelligence, there's robotics, there's um, all sorts of amazing things that are being done with people, you know, but in the back of their minds, having this negativity of, uh, you know, IT, remote learning and just switch off. So I'm actually a little bit stunned. Okay, man, look, granted, I'm in the robotics field, you know, and probably seven years ago, if you spoke to me, I'd probably be what I'm about to say now. But I'm actually a little bit stunned at people's complete oblivion about robotics and AI when I talk to them, just their level. Um, you know, I'm not expecting them to know, like, into complex details, just that they know it's out there and it's happening. They, they seem completely oblivious to the fact. And given how much, particularly with AI, that's coming into the classroom, and when we look at data analytics, we look at how um, a lot of the learning can be analysed and particularly um, modelled with AI. I, I think, you know, in the next probably five years, people who have decided to switch off are going to have to, you know, face the facts that this is, this is what they're going to interact with, whether they realise it or not. And it's, it's sort of, that's the next wave that's going to sort of come through. And again, it's not going to be um, optional. It's going to be, this is what's coming in. And those people who choose not to interact or those people who don't understand analytics or data analytics in terms of how to leverage the data, I think we're going to, we're going to have, that, that's going to be our biggest divide. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a little bit in the schools they have and they have not, which is, yep. Again, a completely different podcast, but I think that's also where we're going to see a huge discrepancy about people. Well, you just weren't exposed to it at school because you lived in a socioeconomic area where it was impossible for you. Mm -hmm. so, now, getting to on a bit of a personal level, 
Do you have a mentor? Um, and if so, tell me about it. Unfortunately, I do not have a mentor. I'm, um, I'm sort of in a boat on my own at the moment. Um, I think COVID probably did that. Um, and so, no, I do not have anybody at the moment. So if there's someone wonderful who feels that they'd love to come and have a chat with me and mentor me, I'd be up for any offers. <laughs> Listen, I was more thinking you you out there to give other people be the mentor <laughs> to them. But in your career, I'm assuming you must have had mentors. Look, I've had a couple along the way, um, but, um, you know, like with any good mentor, they come and go um, and they retire and they um, go off sort of do their own stuff or they go painting and they forget about the outside world or they go gardening. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I suspect they look at you and go, you don't need my help anymore, I'm going. Now off you go, correct? <laughs> that's a bit like that that's right I can now retire in peace and I can you know I can do my gardening and don't you know I'm, my job is done you're perfect <laughs> that's well <laughs> to you know to that extent so no I don't have a mentor okay students thinking of a career in STEM particularly girls any advice to them Look, my, my advice to them is follow your dream, follow your passion, follow what you want to do. And then um, as you as you sort of um, make your way into your field, break down the barriers as you go. Yeah, very, very good advice. Any last closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Look, no, I, I don't. I think we've we've covered quite a lot today um, and we've covered quite a lot in different areas. So, um, you know, we could probably keep chatting for the next hour or two about fixing the world's problems in other areas that aren't. We could, but we're not going to because I know you're on a backlog and you've got a lot of work. So where can our listeners reach you if they want to? Um, look, they can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the easiest way to um, to reach me. Um, and that way I can, you know, they can message me, they can contact me um, and we can then sort of connect from there. That's brilliant advice. And anyone um, listening to the, the podcast, if that's just a given. You should immediately contact them or just connect with them via LinkedIn. As soon as you see the, the person I was speaking to, Find them on LinkedIn and connect. And so I'm listening to your podcast. So, Therese, thank you so much for your time. Um, would you mind sending me some links for the articles of the study that you did? Um, I think that would be quite useful for um, the listeners if they want to read a little bit about it. Happy to. More than happy to. Thank you so much for your time. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. That's right. I've enjoyed having the chat with you too. Really appreciate it, Nikki. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our episode. Join me again next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Mm -hmm.